0: You're listening to The Modern Conservative on iHeartRadio. Joining me on the line is Gigi Foster, who is a professor with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. So, Gigi, uh, I've been arguing since March of last year that lockdown policy was an ill-thought-out, and knee-jerk reaction driven by media hysteria that would have devastating outcomes for human welfare as a whole. Um, I know that you've certainly echoed these sentiments publicly and you have a much larger voice than I do. But here we are, more than a year later, with less than a thousand deaths attributed to this disease, and the government is still continuing this policy of self-annihilation, and there doesn't seem to be an end game in
1: sight. Mm, I completely agree, and you're a man after my own heart. I've been saying the same thing since March, as you said. On the radio and on television and in my department and in the newspapers as as much as i could to basically get a voice um but I agree with you that there's there's been basically no end game during this whole period. And that uncertainty is one of the major sources of um, economic basically uh, suffering and lack of appetite for investment and long term planning. Of course, now we are hearing that the government is planning to reopen borders in the middle of next year. So that's the first real sign of an actual possible end game. But even then, um, it seems to be so far in the future that we, you know, we have uh, more than a year potentially to still uh, suffer with these closed borders. So it's extremely um, (laughs) alarming and disturbing. It's been a horrible period to to live through, but also incredibly instructive in what is actually possible in human societies today for us to go down such a mad path and have so many people just follow right along and, and have their brains basically shut off um, in the face of the mainstream narrative and the and the political imperatives that were, I think, driving it,
0: what do you see as the cause of that?
1: Um, I do think it's multifactorial, but I think that one of the big things is simply the the very well known uh, phenomenon of the politician syllogism. So, a politician, when faced with his population calling for something, and in this case, it was they were so afraid of this COVID virus that, and that was whipped up in part by media, but it was also, um, you know, just something that people, I think, uh, latched onto as the, the big challenge of our day sort of thing. Hadn't been a war for a while, um, you know, there, people were sort of looking for something to belong to and to to get behind and to put their effort towards. And politicians saw this and, and they felt they had to do something. And the politician syllogism is we've got to be seen to do something. What is something? Oh, here's something, let's do that. And so, the, the connection, the rational connection between the action and the intended effect that is to try to preserve welfare, which is what we expect our democratically elected politicians to do to, to look after their constituencies, was basically absent. And so, what happened was because lockdowns were such a big thing, politicians sort of latched onto them and realized, well, we just do this. We should satisfy the population that we are doing something against this perceived threat. And nobody, had an incentive then, nor do they have an incentive now to truly recognize the human costs in full of those decisions. And it wasn't just in Australia that these decisions were made. It was all around the world. And of course, the impacts have been not just in the developed world, but particularly horribly in the developing world. We've killed millions of children, um, mainly brown and black children, because of these decisions. And nobody wants to hear about it because, of course, the Prevailing narrative now is that Australia has won this virus fight relative to many other countries. We are a shining example of COVID success. In reality, I think we mainly got lucky and we closed the international borders very early, prevented the disease from coming in and therefore delayed the actual reckoning with living in a COVID world for most of our society.
0: We also get lucky um, simply by the fact that we're an island as well, right?
1: Very much so. It's very easy for us to close our borders. We don't have um, leakage through from, you know, as the U.S. would from Canada or Mexico without huge costs of monitoring. Um, But of course, you know, you ask Alan Joyce whether we've done a good good thing here. I don't think he'll say yes. (laughs) I mean, not every big industry has benefited. Of course, there have been some big industries that have benefited, and that has been one of the major stories of this crisis, that the kinds of restrictions we've seen on, on business activity, on um, you know just customers' ability to, to, to spend as they would like, have disproportionately impacted small and medium-sized enterprises. And so from uh, you know a traditional economic stewardship kind of perspective, where you don't like reductions in competition because those are bad for consumers, right, and bad for innovation, mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has just been a really bad idea. <laughs> so we've we've empowered and further, further fed the market share of huge companies like Amazon and, uh, you know, Netflix and, and Uber. And we've really just caused a huge amount of disruption and obliteration of a large fraction of our smaller businesses. And that's going to be with us for a long time to come too.
0: Yeah. And the destruction is difficult at this stage even to measure in terms of just how devastating it could be. It could be A generation of devastation.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that this recession or this period of economic downturn featured, which really hasn't been in previous recessions that we have lived through, is the, the radical decision to close schools for significant amounts of time. And of course, you know, as an economist, I can tell you there's a whole cottage industry of education economics um, that has delivered estimates of the impact of missing very small amounts of school relative to what we've done to our kids this period um, on their future earnings, their future happiness, their future outcomes of all sorts that we would care about. And those effects are very large. So, you know, we, we are basically going to be carrying the reduced human capital that we have foisted upon our children for, as you say, a generation or more, because, again, you know, education actually promotes better outcomes in the children of those educated people, particularly when those educated people are women. So we're, we're actually costing future generations, not just our kids today. Uh, and, and that's just, again, for what? It's, it's as if you torched your house and then you said, oh, well, um, you know what? Everything will be fine because we'll employ the, the rest of the world, the rest of our, our society now to fix the house build it again, put the windows on, put the roof on, and look, everything's okay. But you know, you've know, you paid a huge cost, and, and there are going to be costs that, that we haven't even reckoned with at all so far in the official statistics. So that's one of the things I've noticed in the last couple of months. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's this triumphalism about how we've got a V-shaped recovery and you know everything's great. Well, A, the problems like reduced schooling that are gonna be with us for a long time simply are not in those official statistics. And B, um, you know, those official statistics, even if they are about the, you know, the, the labor market, for example, unemployment rate being lower than I thought it was going to be, which is terrific. They're still not capturing things like the decision to withdraw from work, the massive industrial shifts that we've seen with tourism and arts and entertainment being, you know, smashed, and also this reduction in the small and medium-sized enterprises' ability to do activities, and so this increased market share for a large multinational corporations particularly, which is going to be negative for consumers going forward. And, of course, none of the actual destruction that we did of human well-being during the lockdown periods is, is captured in those statistics. And so there's this massive amnesia that's <laughs> that's infecting our, our vision right now about what we've actually done.
0: Yeah, there are two points there that you made that are very important that have been ignored. One, of course, is the economic costs, um, even so-called Politicians within the economic space don't seem to understand that you can't just turn on, turn off and back on an economy like a light switch. Um, it's probably similar to trying to turn around a cruise ship, right? Mm. And in another sense, there's been zero discussion about, um, you know, fore- foregone ca- cancer screenings. I was talking to a surgeon recently who's now been part of writing a paper on his ENT, and they're they're seeing a massive increase of um, mouth cancer and neck cancer because Mm -hmm. of delayed screenings. People are just not getting the standard health checkups. But these sort of things from the very beginning to me, I mean, I'm not an economist, and I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a doctor, but I figured that all you had to do was sort of exercise your rational faculty and see that (laughs) this is clearly (laughs) going to be problematic because I wasn't... I think what it comes down to is is fear. I mean, when I first saw those, my theory on this is that when those first videos emerged from Wuhan, they were filmed on, you know, handheld iPhone cameras or whatever. They were Mm -hmm. showing Chinese people collapsing in the street. It was textbook Chinese propaganda. And when those videos were exported to the West through our media network and disseminated, Fear. The fear was so intense and so quick and also backed up by the fact that the WHO in all of their uh, emergency response preparedness documents were telling people, uh, world leaders, not to to balk at this, to act immediately. No one actually had time to stop and think and debate about the outcome of what this may, may do. So one thing it's that this pandemic has highlighted to me is the extraordinary lack of wisdom in Western politicians.
1: Hmm, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the reasons for that lack of wisdom has been the reduction in diversity of thought. So um, you will have seen over the last year because you were one of the the, the dissidents' voices that there was really a huge cancel culture kind of response to us. Uh, you know, if you try to say something against the mainstream narrative, you were shut down. I mean, I, I received death threats. I was defamed on Twitter. People were calling for my, uh, you know, loss of my job. And, and this was for trying to point out that even from a public health standpoint, as you point out, we were doing the wrong thing because we were going to be crowding out healthcare for those, you know, huge numbers of diseases and, and um, problems that people have that cause them morbidity and mortality that are not covid and so we're going to be seeing that in the death statistics as you see, as you say, going forward. And you're right about the fear. Um, I think A, that politicians didn't have those any dissident voices around them because of this sort of monocultural um, phenomenon that we've seen in the halls of power uh, throughout the Western world kind of increasing over the last maybe 20 years or so. Um, but also because there was just a failure of um, of courage. Again, because people were so wrapped up in that in that in those images, the fearful images, and not just from China, but also from Italy. Uh, remember the, the, the bodies on the street? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just forgot to actually check the data. And even in March, we had the data that showed that this thing was actually, first of all, targeting people who were mainly the elderly, who were going to be weakened already. So it wasn't like the Spanish flu of 1918. It wasn't like polio it wasn't something that was really going to be killing young people in large numbers right and we of course lost you know there, there have been kids who have died to covid but most of the time the vast majority of the time they have been children with pre-existing health problems i um, mean you know, immunocompromised or some other kind of thing this virus just basically is like a normal flu for people who are under about 50. That's so true you know so so that kind of data was available but people were so possessed by their fear as you say that they just couldn't help themselves and they were clamoring and clamoring and again this was this was stoked by the media um so there was a responsibility i think partially on the on the shoulders of the media but again if you are a media magnate what do you want you want a story that bleeds right and and at that moment covid deaths and suffering really bled hard and so it's going to lead, right and so you can see how these dynamics sort of all combined together to create the, the hot mess we were in, in in March, particularly then after Neil Ferguson's team came out with that ridiculous modeling, in hindsight, it was ridiculous, and, and that then triggered this, you know, floodgate of, well, look, the science is in, and If we don't act now, we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of people. We've got to act and then click on the politician syllogism, and then we get the lockdowns without much thought. You're exactly right. Um, And so what we need, I think, going forward, and I'm writing a book about this, actually, at the moment with a couple of co-authors in terms of what can we do to try to prevent something like this happening in future, which is my biggest concern now, of course. Um, One of the things I think we need to do is figure out ways to create space for more diversity of thought in the halls of power. We need to work out how we can get alternative views and and different perspectives and just totally different interpretations of the same facts or even maybe different facts into the, the the rooms where decisions are being made at crucial moments, um, and and that's not an easy thing to figure out how to do, uh, given the various different dynamics we've got, which range from very very large multinational corporations, uh, you know, having risen to such prominence and power, uh, the uber rich, you know, who were mm-hmm. running those corporations, um, and you know, the media storm that we've had, the interconnectedness of the world that just wasn't here as we see it now, forty years ago, um, and the sort of complacency and lack of community identity and spirits and sort of meaning in a lot of the lives of people in Western societies, um, which I think, again, was capitalised on during this period. So there's a lot of different factors that we have to really think hard about how to manage going forward in terms of trying to adjust our institutions to better immunise us against having a, a catastrophe like this again.
0: I think what's interesting also is the fact that, and I think this is another Another thing that highlighted some big problems in our culture in the West. Um, We'll focus on on Australia for the the sake of this argument, but you essentially had or have maybe around half the population who um, was very much so, or is very much so still in support of this policy. Maybe not quite half now, but there's still a large contingent of people that support this. And this, from the very beginning, was a very political virus as much as it was um, a medical virus. You had um, left-wing politicians or, in our country, sort of Labor politicians and Greens that were advocating for these measures, Um, but also the Liberal Party who, in some ways, are no longer really a... A voice of kind of classical liberalism They're Mm -hmm. very much a multinational liberal party Uh, So to find those dissident political voices It's very difficult to have room Or or there's not a lot of room for those voices Because Labour and Liberal Don't really seem to support Libertarian or traditional classical liberal values anymore Which is of course freedom, freedom of the individual And on one hand, you have a large swathe of the public that is actually benefiting from the lockdowns. You know, they can work from home. They've got government jobs. So you saw this really quite astonishing degree of selfishness that was clearly to me all about self-preservation, thinly veiled as um, community care. And I noticed this when you appeared on Q&A. It's it's as almost as if they saw you as a murderer. They couldn't see, they could not see the argument that was we need to have a discussion about whether or not what's happening now is actually going to cost more lives. They couldn't understand that argument, which suggested to me that there was a high level of self-preservation involved here
1: hmm Yes, no, I, I do agree with that. And I think you're right to point out the fact that many of the decision makers of that time were quite secure in their jobs. They weren't going to find any real negative effects of um, you know, what they were deciding on to inflict on the rest of Australia and the rest of the world, um, our trading partners, etc., and, and the people the, you know, people living in countries that we send aid to, all that. Um, and and really there there was a selfishness in the sense of feeling that oh if if i can just hitch my cart my my horse to this cart and and wear my mask and avoid these kinds of close proximity situations and maybe even enforce on other people these sorts of restrictions then i'm a good person and i can feel good about myself i can be a hero in mm-hmm. my in my time i can be a hero in my time and and you know those people who go against this well they obviously don't care about humans you know and and the monikers like granny killer I mean, somebody. People have called me "Granny Killer," you know, and and ironically, of course, the people yeah. who are who are whose healthcare has been crowded out by this madness are mainly older people. Actually, so many of the people dying right now. I mean, I looked up the mortality statistics just this morning, and the people who are dying more now of of things like cancer, as you say, are going to be predominantly the older people. And so, really, you know, who's the Granny Killer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, I mean, who are we, you know? And and it really even isn't even about in this case, I mean, it's become way beyond a question of trading off lives of the older people for lives of the younger people. It's really just, you know, lockdowns are a no-win scenario either way you look at it, because the correlation between lockdowns and COVID deaths is actually non-existent, right? There's now been a good amount of research on this. There've been studies around the world, which actually the um, American uh, Institute for Economic Research has compiled very, very cleanly. And you can see that really, you know, some of the countries that locked down hard had some good, you know, reactions in terms of COVID deaths. Some of them really didn't. Some of them, you know, who didn't lock down hard, were fine, and some had more deaths. And it's sort of it's sort of a mixed bag. So this is another reason I say I think Australia has been lucky. It's been lucky in terms of its geographical location, in the fact that it's an island nation and can easily block international borders, in the fact that we've got a lot of sunshine, in the fact that we don't have huge population density. Um, we might even. Have have the right species of bats to have been, you know, exposed to coronaviruses in the past and give us some some deep immunity. So there are all sorts of reasons why we've had a good experience here and it has nothing to do with the extreme reactions of these monocultural politicians, which coming back to your point about, um, you know, the absence of diversity of thought in the liberal versus labor party. I mean, they're basically indistinguishable on many policy issues now. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah. It's been quite interesting. I mean, I've always considered myself you know, pretty centrist and, and just kind of independent of politics. I don't really follow a particular ideology for the sake of the ideology. I follow it for pragmatic reasons, if I think it's actually going to be good for people. Um, that's that's kind of my always been my orientation. But during this period, I have found that particularly the left have been completely out to lunch. They just have not seen at all. Um, You know the massive costs that we are foisting upon ourselves with these draconian policies, and the right—you know—the mainstream right have sort of been sitting on their hands more than anything. And the people who have really come out in force, in support of what I've been saying have indeed been the libertarians, um, the, the sort of independent thinkers, the ones who would maybe call themselves uh, conservative in some way, but, but might also have quite radical, um, you know, progressive views on social issues potentially, but they basically just think about things from a more, I guess, humanitarian standpoint or perspective of how do we save the most lives. And it is about always, always about lives versus lives. Um, and and that's one thing that was very easy to paint me as was sort of an economist in the Australian interpretation of that term, which unfortunately has is, is got a lot more money in it then then is warranted economics is not about money i mean i mean i'm, I'm a pretty poor financial manager myself but <laughs> it is definitely about welfare right the maximando of all of economics is total human welfare and so what i've been doing as my job as i see it is to to try to advocate for what is best for human welfare as a whole but the australian public have don't understand economics that way they think of it as really just about profits and and, and you know stock stock values and whatnot and so it was easy to paint me as an economist as somebody who was trading off the economy or money or something materialistic on the one hand for lives on the other. And now, of course, again, in hindsight, and even at the time, I think I I suspected, and now we really know that it really, there isn't even a trade-off at all with lockdowns. It's just unilaterally a bad idea, certainly with COVID. Now, could you come up with a virus that would be lethal enough to justify locking down the whole population? Yeah, yeah, you could, but it would have to be a damn sight worse than COVID.
0: You'd almost have to see it in the air.
1: Absolutely. It's, I mean, it has to be killing kids left, right and center. It has to be, you know, infecting people and then felling them very quickly. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that have to be happening. We have to have no other treatments, which, by the way, is another whole subtopic, right? The idea that we somehow only can just witness people dying if they catch it. Or, and, and just hope that they don't get symptoms, maybe. And then if they do, well, mm, hopefully they won't die. And then hope, 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 hope. And then maybe they do die. Or just prevent it from coming here at all. Or vaccinate people with, with you know, somewhat dubiously efficacious and possibly having long-term side effects vaccines. That's, that's also a fallacy. There are plenty of things we can do to treat people who have COVID. And, and the discussion about those possibilities has also been sort of canceled. In Australia, so if you mention, if you so much as whisper the word ivermectin, for example, um, you know you're basically branded an anti-vax, crazy looney tunes person who should be, you know, who's got fringe views. And and when has that been normal? You know, I mean, we we treat people with illnesses, you know, using medicine in general, you know, in normal times. So like, why can't we talk about that? You know, and and you see the actual. Uh, decisions of some countries like India to stop exporting ivermectin that gives you a clue that somebody thinks that maybe it's a good idea to use it sometimes maybe it has an you know an impact and so so it's just that kind of cancellation again tells you that something else is going on it's not logical thinking it's political and it's it's about group loyalty and and keeping the narrative going in order to save face for politicians and to feel good about what they've sacrificed for the population
0: yes and it is very much being driven by, by the left, and they've they've exposed themselves. I don't I don't see myself as right or left either. Uh, you know, I, I like to look at things independently. I have conservative views. I mean, the name of my show is a bit of a play on words. However, what's become apparent to me is that what what isn't normal is the left anymore. Um, the left typically were. Uh, uh, pro-environmental issues, these sorts of things. However, they've really turned into, at least the Labor left, have turned into this population that is entirely dependent upon um, technocrats. So in this case, people like these chief health officers have become unquestionable. They've become high priests for these people. So unless it comes from their chief health officer of choice, then it's a bad idea. And if it's a bad idea, then you're a bad person. And it's a it's a perfect um, thing for the left to take up because they're very good at taking up causes that are very ambiguous and uh, at, at an arm's length where they don't actually have to get their hands dirty. Things like Black Lives Matter, Save the Planet, Love mm-hmm. is Love. So, when this came along, the virus, it was actually one of the first things I noticed was the split between right and left. And I I think Donald Mm -hmm. Trump had a bit to do with this, the the sort of pathological hatred for Trump from these people. The the minute he was talking about how we should be trialling some of these alternate medicines, people just went absolutely berserk. And, you know, one thing that they do like, they may not like economists, but they certainly like economic welfare, And they're happy for the welfare to keep coming, yet they don't quite understand that, you know, in an economic environment that welfare is not a perpetually turned on tap. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, everything from the mask, first the lockdowns, then the mask and now the vaccine, it's very Orwellian. It's, you know, you have to think that if if you'd have to think that if china did have a plan to to attack here my thoughts are that it's not actually the virus itself it's to convince western governments to self annihilate their economies
1: <laughs> yeah yeah look i mean it's very interesting all these these um sort of causes that have been championed, particularly by the left. I mean, I I used to uh, think, you know, when I was in college, I would do, you know, I would join the climate marches and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I thought, yeah, this is important and, you know, cause of our times. But I look back on it now and I, and I think, gosh, you know, there was just so much adherence to those causes, which was brainless. It was a brainlessness. There was no thought. And and that's what we've seen, again, this period. It's sort of, oh, okay, if I can just accept this particular Magic bullet, or this particular story of of how I've sinned, you know, like yeah. if we if we consume, then we are sinners because we are contributing to the destruction of the planet, right? And so that makes everybody feel like they've got to somehow repent, and it it, it gives kind of a almost a meaning, I mean, a kind of dysfunctional meaning to their activities and their interactions with people. You know, it can be all about blaming and let's let's ferret out the person who is doing the wrong thing so that we can all feel better than him superior to him and echoed him for being wrong right it's so divisive and it's because partly of this lack of thought it's it's just a lot easier to say oh look my my group as a whole is is adhering to this particular ideology i'm just gonna start parroting that and then i can turn my brain off that's really comfortable because a lot of people really don't like to think you know they actually find it unpleasant to think right and and i can just i can turn my brain off and just follow along and i'll i'll continue to get the security of of feeling a sense of belonging with this group and and i don't have to constantly reevaluate things gosh what a relief and then i can use my mental energy for other things like deciding which mask goes best with my outfit or whatever so it's (laughs) it's just you know a very different approach to using your brain, I suppose. And then of course, the the extra effort can also be used to, the spare, can be used to rationalize whatever the group had decided. So, oh, we've got so many different rationalizations for why this was a good idea. And, you know, plenty of scientists even have gone right along with that bandwagon. And that's been another really despairing thing for me to see during this period is the extent to which economics as a profession has just abjectly failed Australia during this period we've you know i mean we've had hundreds of people signing letters that basically say there are no 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 trade-offs there are no trade-offs here between you know uh what we're doing uh with covid's you know protection stuff and lives of of other sorts not just covid lives um there's no health versus economy trade-off which kind of ironically is sort of true but it was being put forward with this you know, just basically to justify the mainstream narrative and the mainstream idea that, well, we just need to lock everything down and wait till you know nobody dies anymore, and then we can open up, with a complete blindness to the other deaths that would cause. And so, I've just found found myself very much on the outs in in, in Australia in terms of the economics profession. I've got you know great friends and family and plenty of people supporting me in the in the sidelines and privately. But my goodness, the extent to which we failed, and many economists have, I think, at least in Australia, have traditionally thought of themselves as left-wing, at least in terms of their their basic sort of social um, activism or social awareness or something, and usually would bleat on about welfare losses, particularly to the less advantaged. Well, this period has been regressive. (laughs) We have messed up the lives mostly of people who are already disadvantaged, and that's not just in Australia, again, but also overseas. So um, yeah, this this idea that somehow um, you know we can we can sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice for some mainstream narrative and then get a good result and 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 that kind of bullying of other people who have a dissenting view is is in service to the bigger good. I mean, gosh, it starts to sound a little bit like 1930s Germany, doesn't it? I mean, it's, yes. it's you know very scary. So I'm I'm very hopeful. I continue to be hopeful about humanity that you know, we can work our way out of this disaster without, um, you know, without actually descending further into that kind of direction um, politically. But I do think we need to resuscitate real thought. We need to resuscitate economic literacy, which is one of the things that I think prevented people from understanding my argument about lives versus lives. And and as you say, the idea that we could just keep a government welfare tap running uh, perpetually (laughs) on the back of much less economic activity actually going on in the economy, that's just you know not true and so that there was a mass blindness to that which may partly be because people really don't understand economics in this country and, and maybe overseas as well Um, and we need to we need to resuscitate diversity and the idea as we have in market economies where you want diversity of approaches you want different companies trying different things and the best one wins in a, in a competitive market that's what gives us Welfare, that's what gives us high quality goods at low prices produced by people who have hit upon the best idea. We need that model in politics. We need that model in the rooms in which big decisions about stewardship of our economies and and our societies are, uh, you know, are being made.
0: I think that it's not just economics that has failed, and and maybe this is where it all begins, is that it's actually academia that's failed. And academia is in a very bad position right now. Universities are in a bad position. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, they often, or in this case, they're perhaps the, the, the cause of a lot of the lack of wisdom or diversity because, you know, universities used to be uh, the coliseum of ideas. Um, but you could any, any idea was welcome and a bad idea would get crushed by a good idea or a bad argument mm-hmm. by a good argument. But universities now have so much um, red tape around dangerous ideas that mm-hmm. these people now are in positions of power and they've never really been in a situation where they've had to confront an opposing idea and then change their mind about that idea. Mm-hmm. So when people in, industry, in professions like yours come in with a, a counter idea It's seen as, it is seen as a dissenter, not as a, not as a, um, a, as a, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking looking for, Um, as a peer, right?
1: Mm, Yes, no, definitely. It's not just seen as here's another idea that we can throw into the mix as we all work together to find out what's best, (laughs) which is kind of the way. I've always thought of academia as a model. It's sort of let's let's have a debate and let's and not just a debate in terms of playing Gotcha, but you know let's let's build alternative stories and and then have them compete in the marketplace for ideas and um, you know the, may the best idea win and and best means. The one you know most predictive of reality the one that's most useful for generating the most welfare and it's that that is just not the model that most academics unfortunately now are operating with and it's not entirely their fault right so this is the other thing i would say is that um you know the, the society is angry as a as a as a piece at higher education at, at universities right and they sort of tar everybody in a university with the same brush But the reality is that much of this sort of cancel culture dynamic and the monoculturalism and the, you know, my way or the highway sort of um, approach to uh, accepting or not accepting uh, real debate um, has, has really been perpetrated upon many academics who entered the profession with all the best intentions and privately may very well agree with much of what we're saying right now. But they just, in order to keep their jobs, they feel they must toe the line because right. of administrators, because of the hierarchy that tells us essentially how to behave and how to think. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's a real problem. I mean, again, it's the idea that we've created an institutional structure in which real thought and debate and respectful debate and and with an inclusive mindset where we're saying everybody belongs, even if your idea t- ends up being, you know, washed down the drain, we're still going to respect you as a person and invite you into our home and, and understand your motivations were good, you know, yes. and, and if, if it really weren't, then okay, there's a punishment system, but you don't punish people for suggesting an alternative viewpoint, right? So that that, that kind of institutional structure we've got now in in universities is strangling real... Dialogue and and it's a major problem and it is it is tarring our whole sector with this brush of you know you guys are in league with you know everything from you know the Freemasons to the Chinese Communist Party to the you know the the, the capitalist pigs who are running these you know multinational corporations I mean I can't tell you the number of stories about conspiracy and you know uh, <laughs> basically people <laughs> being agents of this that and the other that I've, yeah. that I've heard from around and sometimes directed at me. Um, But the story is really much more simple than that. It's just that there is this monoculturalist um, dynamic that pervades the universities. And so the academics really cannot speak out. And I'm lucky that UNSW has not muzzled me during this whole period. I mean, they've not exactly given me a lot of airtime on their own media channels while I've been on national TV and national radio and national papers and all this. I, you know, they, until very recently, they really were not spruiking any of that on their own, but they are now starting to give me a little bit of oxygen um, and, and they've certainly not, I've had no calls to, to be quiet. So, you know, at least at least I can say that. And maybe I've, that. And nobody's even, you know, broached the idea of firing me. So that's always a good thing.
0: Maybe that does support the, the narrative that they actually believe what we're saying in private.
1: I think this is true. And actually, even during the period last year when when things were heated the most, I think I had the sense that somebody somewhere thought that I should be given some oxygen. And that's why I was able to get on to, you know, the Q&A programs multiple times and, and have stuff published and whatnot. Somebody somewhere... Um, And it's not just a single person, but there were there were, you know, clutches of people in different positions of power who thought maybe she's got a point and some deep, dark recess of their heart, or maybe they even really saw it and saw the politicking for what it was and that this was all just rhetoric and sacrifice and that actually we needed to get back to a a normal narrative and maybe if I had a, a, a platform that would help hasten things and I mean, I hope that that's been true and I hope that, uh, you know, that that I have made an impact, but it's, you know, you never know. And at the end of the day, all of the damage that we've done and the, the perpetrators of that damage will basically go on un, unseen and unpunished respectively. That's just how it happens in history, unfortunately. So I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for any sort of grand reckoning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was extraordinary. I, I don't watch Q and A, but someone sent me the video. You were on an episode with Adam Crichton, who I've I've had on the show. And yeah. It was fantastic. It was just almost like I was had slipped into another dimension seeing you two on that program <laughs> and hearing what you were saying and seeing the disbelief and the the lack of applause yeah. from the audience on comp- some of the most reasonable points that were being made that night on television. And so, so what I f- what I fear the most is that we've become we've become so decadent that we've actually become very dumb and very intellectually lazy, and that's created an environment where slogans like the science is settled mm. are accepted not just by the public but by quite powerful people.
1: Yeah, I totally agree, and even by top scientists themselves. Absolutely. And if you think about but it is again it's a story of economics it's a story of incentives so once you have published something that has gotten a lot of play like like neil ferguson's model is a good example um you know it it was just kind of it set the headline numbers for a while and then there were more papers that came out looking at different aspects of the crisis and, and those publish what turned out to be headline numbers. And once you've got that headline number out there published in nature or the Lancet or science or one of these big name journals, my goodness, do you have an incentive as the author of that paper and the editor of that journal? Do you have an incentive to publish more papers and, and review and accept more papers that are saying basically the same thing? Right. And so anybody who comes with a totally different idea is, is you know, likely to get rejected. We have this system called peer review. Who reviews those papers? Well, it's typically the people who have done work in the field previously, right, which means people who have got published work that's come out with a particular position. And because those positions were so oh, so almost, I would say, violently uh, adhered to in, in, the, in those initial papers, That made the the authors even more tethered to a particular stance than would have been the case if the papers had, had retained a little bit of kind of, you know, niggling doubt, or maybe, you know, this isn't completely settled, or, you know, an objective scientist would also consider this, this, and this, and this must be done for future research. You know, the kinds of caveats that you put in if you're a responsible scientist when you know you don't have all the answers. But that hadn't been done in the in the fury of march and april 2020 and so we got these scientists tethered even more than they otherwise would have been and and this dynamic happens even in non-covid times but it became even that much worse during this period and that again served as a, as a, a catalyst of cancellation of other alternative viewpoints and and you know alternative estimates of the IFR or the CFR or the or, or the number of people who would have died with this or that or whatever else, mm. uh, and so yeah, it's been to see that happening in science as well. Um, you know, the science has settled. Basically, we can all switch our brains off now. It's okay. It's all safe, right? We've got the right story. Let's just push on with that. And yes, it will require some sacrifice. You know, so oh yeah, you know, you don't have to have to suffer to get this. Again, it it reminds you a bit of of the sin stories of old, you know, <laughs> you, you must self-flagellate because you're a sinner, you know, you're bad. And and if you're not a sinner, um, then, you know, the other guy around the block or across the street is because, look, he's not wearing his mask, you know. So it's just this really divisive stuff, and um, I, I, I hate seeing it. It's um, bad for the soul.
0: <laughs> it is. And just on your previous point, I mean, when you've got a cohort of authors who are violently adhering to those positions, it's very easy to come up with. A conclusion that ninety-seven percent of scientists agree, X.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. You can manufacture consensus with the flick of a pen, and and that, I, again, you do see some of that dynamic anyway in normal times. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we why science was a sitting duck for this sort of dynamic once COVID hit, because people had already gotten into that into that practice. I mean, as an example from my own uh, research life. I, I have basically a, a double pronged strategy. On the one prong, I research stuff that I know is likely to be reasonably well received in the fields. I don't say things that I think are wrong, but it's not, I'm not asking the questions that I think are the most important for the discipline or for people necessarily. I just sort of need to keep the CV ticking along to retain my, my position. So I publish those things in pretty good journals. And then the second prong, which is cross subsidized by the first, is where I ask really serious questions about big things like love and power and, and you know, things that are not understood well by my modern economics. And those publications do not reach it into the top journals in my field, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to probably have to even self-publish this book on that I'm writing right now, because which publisher is going to stick his neck out for that? I mean, that's a hot potato if I ever heard of it, right? So most of that really great stuff, in my view, is just, you know, it's just not as prominent, it's not as prominently published because I know that I wouldn't get it into the the, the top journals. And, and so that's that's just a reality, that strategy is a reaction to the realities that we face now in science. Um, which have been exposed even by people, uh, you know, who who are what you'd think of as being very, very left wing. Um, There was a classic, I mean, wonderful kind of expose done by some people in sociology where they wrote these bogus papers. I don't know if you've heard about this. They wrote bogus papers about, you know, uh, just all sorts of things from from dog park. Yeah, I I did
0: read these.
1: Yeah. It was brilliant. I submitted them and they got these papers accepted, and they were just completely fabricated and silly. But it kind of, you know, it was an attempt to expose the sort of, again, brainlessness and the fact that if you just push the right buttons in your exposition, you're much more likely to get accepted than if you don't push the right buttons and you're telling a story that's, that's somewhat realistic. So, you know, that's, that's a problem for science moving forward.
0: Just to clear that up for the listeners, what you're talking about here is there were papers written, one of them was to prove um, a rape culture within dog parks. Yep. Was, that, was that it?
1: yeah it was something like that. As I recall, it was sort of the these scientists said they'd gone to to dog parks and and watched the behavior of the dogs and that there was something that was i don't know something about the sexual behavior of the dogs and they That's were used, right. able to use- this phrase, rape culture, um, in relation to the dog's behaviour. And so then they spun a whole sociological story around this that was put into this paper and then they submitted it to a journal and it it got, as I recall, that was the one that actually got accepted and then got some sort of award for best paper or something. (laughs) Extraordinary. I (laughs) know.
0: Just just, just quickly, I mean, you mentioned there about love and what's interesting is that I think to actually argue from the position of... Lives on one side versus lives on another side, it does actually require an incredible amount of maturity and empathy and love, and that's what they don't seem to understand.
1: Well, that's been that's kind of you to say that, Nicholas. I, I, um, I've felt very sad uh, at times during last year because, indeed, my true motivations during this whole period have been to uh, have been. Have been essentially an outgrowth of my great love for humanity for people and for the welfare of people and so then to be accused of for example being a granny killer is it, it it is very hurtful I mean it stings me I'm a very strong person as you can tell but I but it's still you know I'm also very you know I feel things so that kind of misinterpretation of motivation is is um Is again something that you know I'm kind of used to. Like it's happened a bit throughout my life. People do question um, my motivations more than I, I I guess I would like them to do. But partly it's because I think I I just act in accordance with that love a lot, like most of the time. And I'm really not motivated by, for example, money or power. I'm not as motivated by those things as many people are. And to the extent that I know those things corrupt me, I stay away from them. So I stay away from power if possible. I stay away, and I, I try to surround myself with people who. Yes. <laughs> Um, will challenge me and and push me out of my comfort zone because that's how you keep yourself fresh it's how you keep yourself able to you know, to really know your own position actually um if you argue or you, you debate with someone who has a completely diametrically opposite position you learn a lot about mm-hmm. why you're you know you believe your position is the right one and and maybe you also change your position a little bit depending on what you know interaction you have that's that's how we grow right and so that that also comes out of a sense of love and inclusiveness you know i mean i'm very much a, a humanist at heart and and so that, that idea of trying to do the best for all of people, um, I wish that was something that was more um, clearly uh, you know, inculcated into our kids when they're growing up and um, you know, in families that that's just, that's, you know, love is the right strategy. Um, and of course, people are going to want to get ahead and want to make money and, and, and have profits. And that's completely fine and natural and something that economics accepts. But there is also this extremely important motivation of, and, and we just don't, um, acknowledge it as much in economics as we should, and we certainly don't understand it. and that's that's motivated my my research into those kinds of um, very interesting questions about how love arises and how it is sustained and you know what it makes us do.
0: And it's tricky because there's a very distorted understanding of love and inclusiveness in Western societies in our in our own society at the moment. Um, you know, love is a complex thing to understand and it's not a feeling all of the time right i think that we've yeah, made, we've, become,
1: that.
0: we've become a society that's obsessed with feeling and and what mm-hmm. feels best and uh, what whatever feels best i have the right to do and i think that that's driven a lot of the um the problematic policies throughout this pandemic as well so maybe the the way that we can actually turn this around is to for journalists to actually start showing some of the suffering that has happened during this pandemic it's all well and good to save one person's life but if you're not giving the same level of media attention that you're giving to you know scenes of people rushing through supermarkets, ripping toilet paper, fighting over toilet paper, if you're not giving the same amount of attention to an 80-year-old that's alone in a hospital bed dying, Mm
1: -hmm. forbidden
0: to see their children, people are just not going to connect with that. And isn't that just a, a deeply sad thing to think about, someone dying alone because of this policy?
1: Absolutely. And, and this is exactly the sort of un, unseen cost and, and unrecognized um, suffering that uh, has, has really made me want to just punch the wall during this period so much. And, and you're quite right that love is not a feeling. Love is a state of mind. Love is essentially an identity for the self that includes others. And so when you adopt such an identity, it can be painful because if those others suffer, you suffer right? If you know they're suffering, you're suffering. But to the extent that they're joyful, you are joyful. Um, it is an identification of, of yourself with other people. And, and that can bring all sorts of different emotions. And it's a courageous thing to love because you expose yourself to the possibility of other people's outcomes affecting you. Um, and that that links you inevitably to them. And so that that attitude, that stance um, is not a, a, a surefire, surefire feel-good strategy. And as you say, there's this immature um, sort of dynamic or attitude that people have where they just say, well, if it feels good, then that's fine. I'll just do that. And, and that indeed is part of what has motivated people to hitch their, their horses to this n- mainstream narrative cart and just continue to pair it along um, because it feels good. They have a sense of belonging. They have a sense of purpose. Um, it sort of you know ticks some boxes for them emotionally. But, uh, you know, and and of course, the feel good um, objective is not going to be met by any kind of of rational view or understanding or acknowledgement of all of those costs that you were just talking about that we've caused. that Those actions have directly caused the, the suffering and the deaths that we have caused. I mean, to say that like that and and to actually accept that, oh, my actions in going along with this narrative have directly caused damage, that really does not feel good, right? So that's why I'm not anticipating that there's going to be this massive reckoning, right? Mm -hmm. We just, we're not going to get to a political message which acknowledges and admits that this, this was a colossal mistake. What we're going to get to, I think the best we can get to is kind of a, well, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time, but you know, we've we've done well with COVID, so that's good. And now we really just have to get moving again, sort of thing. Um, and, and I've been advocating for a new political message now for months, six months at least. Um, and, and maybe the vaccines have to be part of that to say, look, you know, not that I would ever go on any, any public or private place and say that we should mandate vaccination against this thing. Um, but I do think that they can be used strategically to to help people feel a bit better. Um, to say, hey, there's a vaccine available. And if you're older or you're immunocompromised, you know, you can have a chat with your doctor, and these will be available for you, you can get them. Um, so that to to be to use that to help reduce the fear, uh, I think would be good, and to try to normalize a bit. And really, you know, moving forward, I think we just need some other things to think about. Indeed, you know, putting the the pain on the table, as you say, may be a, a possible strategy, but I think it'll just make most people. Turn away because they just don't want to, fee- they don't want to see that. Right. And so I think the better that thing is, yeah. is to, you know, to look forward and to say, what else can we, when can we do now that that will be positive and doesn't carry this admission of guilt? So, you know, how can we, uh, Oh, look, let's plant some trees. Let's, um, you know, let's, let's open the playground. Let's let's restructure some of our um, social infrastructure so we can get daycares in a better place for working families. And, you know, let's, uh, you know, I don't know, have this other local infrastructure project and have some community artwork or something, you know, just give people something else to focus on and to to give them purpose and meaning and to get them out of this great gaping hole of, of COVID fear and mania.
0: Well, it's interesting you say, what can we do? Because, Love is also very much a verb, right? It's a doing word and it's rarely glamorous. Love is Mm -hmm. holding back the hair of a homeless person while they're vomiting or sitting down and listening to them on the street or in this case, um, community work afterwards to go and visit people in old age homes that have had experienced extreme uh, loneliness But my concern is that the wheels moved so quickly at the beginning of this in terms of lockdown policy that they're not going to slow down. So it's going to go from uh, the lockdowns to the vaccinations to the vaccination passports, and then we'll see one of the other four horsemen of the apocalypse pop up, climate change, racism. (laughs) It's never
1: ending. I know. It's, I, I totally agree, Nicholas. I totally agree. And that's why I was trying to point to more community-oriented uh, objectives. I agree with that, yeah. Rather than these great, grand, and you know, supposed other, you know, other narratives that we were seeing before COVID that I think will probably be coming back. Um, but yes, that is a serious concern. And one of the dynamics I think will emerge is more nationalism. Um, and that can be a positive or it can be a negative. So, you know, it can go along with xenophobia and, um, you know, sort of more exclusive kinds of um, attitudes towards immigrants and everything like this. That, that's not necessarily a good thing, um, you know, but they can also be a positive feature, right? If you start to, to think of, well, what's good for Australia as a whole? Well, yes, that's what we should be thinking about. So making policy on that basis rather than being tethered to whatever some international organization says we should do. So it's it's a, it's a, difficult to know how that's going to go. But I do worry a little bit about destructive nationalism, the rise of destructive nationalism. Um, but I agree as well that there will be simply new causes that will come along and be hit upon by the elites and people in power who have ridden this COVID wave to more power and more money. And they're going to want that to continue as long as possible. And so if they can find another cause, another slogan then, uh, that they can use to, con- to, to make all of this suffering of other people and their own enrichment and aggrandisement continue, unfortunately, they will.
0: Yes, they, they, they will. And the problem, the overarching problem I see it is is globalism and, and nationalism, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one. There's a lot of many, mm-hmm. there are a lot of positive elements of nationalism that are not discussed as widely Perhaps as things like, you know, white supremacists or things like that. But within nationalism is culture and within culture is community. And I think yep. that we've lost that from globalization. And, and all of these, all of these, um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are all products of globalization.
1: Yes, no, I mean, I think this idea of um, everyone in the whole world subscribing to a particular way of thinking, <laughs> that's basically an international version of the national monoculture that we were speaking of earlier. Sure. And, you know, and it's going towards the idea of, of world empire and all that sort of thing, which is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just the worst thing you could imagine for humanity to have that. And again, it's an abandonment of the of the concept and the, the model of competition, what we have seen is that the best things we get as a, as a species happen when we've got multiple people trying multiple different things and after some period of time of testing the the best way wins out. That's what we do in markets. that's what we do in countries with countries competing with each other for who can create the best you know welfare or quality of life for their people and and world empire is the opposite of that. so so you know when when for example you know Janet Yellen or, or Thomas Piketty or whoever is, Coming out claiming that we need to have an international you know minimum corporate tax, and that's going to be you know the the, the way forward for you know trying to bring back into the fo- the fold or back in line these uber rich people running these multinational corporations. I mean it's a fantasy, come on yeah. we've got national sovereignty at least we do now, <laughs> and that is something <laughs> we do not want to give up. It's not good for humanity
0: just just before you go very briefly uh, are there any indications that politicians are going to start? paying attention to some of the cost-benefit analysis that are popping up?
1: Um, I don't know, but I will find out this weekend. I'm actually going to Canberra to speak um, to a conference called the National Assembly of Local Government, um, and there are apparently several hundred people there from local councils around the place, and I, I'm definitely planning to take the temperature and, you know, work out whether there is any receptivity to um, these sorts of stories. I, I think within departments from what I have seen, and some of it is, you know, sort of confidential, but I, I've seen some acceptance that there are costs of certainly continuing to keep our borders closed. That seems to be something that can be talked about. Mm-hmm. This notion of let's reckon with the past, no, that's not much appetite for that, <laughs> right? as you can imagine, <laughs> um, for political reasons, but, but certainly moving forward to recognize that there is a cost between, you know, a, a trade-off of having the borders closed versus and, and you know, lesser economic activity in a very restructured industrial mix versus having the borders open and then having our flows of informa- information and integration and everything else resume, um, that, that is certainly being heard. Whether it will end up speeding the, the return to normalcy, I, I don't know. I have hope, but um, I'm also a realist. So uh, realistically, I don't really expect to be able to get out of this country until probably May or June next year.